You know, I don't think every single Jewish organization should survive. And maybe this is the time that we find out which ones are important, which ones aren't. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers. Today, we are speaking with Shira and Jay Ruderman, the power couple at the helm of the Ruderman Family Foundation. The foundation invests in three primary areas of focus, one, advocating for and advancing the inclusion of people with disabilities. Two, strengthening the relations between Israel and the American Jewish community. And three, modeling the practice of strategic philanthropy. Shira, who serves as the executive director of the foundation, holds an MA in public policy and a BA in education from Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She also served three years as a commander in the intelligence unit of the Israeli army. In 2014, she was chosen as one of the 100 most influential women in Israel by the Nashim Journal. Jay, who is president of the foundation, has focused his life's work on seeking social justice by advocating for people with disabilities around the world. He also seeks to educate Israeli leaders on the complexities of American Jewish community. He has never shied away from controversy, consistently challenging those in power to push issues forward. Prior to joining the foundation, Jay's career began in law as an assistant district attorney. He then enlisted in the Israel Defense Forces, becoming the liaison between the IDF and diaspora jury. After his service in the IDF, he became the leadership director for APAC in Israel. He currently serves on the board of director of the National Organization on Disability and the University of Haifa. He previously served on boards of many organizations, including the JFN and the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. Jay graduated from Brandeis University with honors and received his JD from Boston University School of Law. The Rudermans live in Boston with their four children. Now, when we first spoke back in December, which now seems like a decade ago, we talked about their work in disability, inclusion, how they bring advocacy as well as financial investment into their work, and what it's like to be an Israeli-American intercultural marriage. I caught up with them again more recently to check in about how the COVID pandemic has been affecting them and their work. So you will have here these two pieces of our conversation. Enjoy and take a listen. So hi, Shira and Jay, really great pleasure to be with you in our first podcast with two guests. So you're pioneering this one too. <laughs> Thank you for inviting us. So why don't you tell me a little bit, uh, each of you, what, what brought you to the field of philanthropy? I was always interested in social justice, my career as, as a lawyer and political activist, and eventually... I think uh, when my dad became ill and asked me to um, jump into the foundation, I initially thought philanthropy was pretty boring and that the actual work was being done by activists in the field. But I think that I've been able to take the foundation and, and shape it in a way that um, we operate as, I would say, a combination of um, impact investing and bringing our agenda to organizations. And also we're an advocacy organization. We speak out on the issues that are important to us. We do a lot of work with the media and social media. I think that's where we find ourselves now. So I think I started without to think about philanthropy as philanthropy. I grew up in a house that giving, and I grew up as a very middle-class uh, person in Israel that, you know, wealth and money was not something we experienced. Um, the talking about philanthropy was not what we had in the essence of our giving, but it was standing up for an issue, giving for what you can, being committed, getting involved, and later on, when I met Jay and we, you know, got married, I think that it got a more professional understanding that actually philanthropy is a whole professional field 
but I could never disconnect that from the fact that it is based on values and mindset of giving commitment and responsibility, and then to grow, as Jay said, into the professional aspect of philanthropy. You come from very different backgrounds, both of you. So in a way, it's kind of funny that your foundation works a lot in the Israel diaspora dialogue because you're a living example of that relationship in your marriage. How does that work? Well, Shir and I have been married for a long time and, you know, we do have our differences. And I think that, you know, we've learned to address the cultural differences. I mean, I had the benefit of living in Israel for many years and Shir has lived in America for many years. So I think we understand the cultures that we come from. Professionally, before I became involved in the foundation, I worked for APAC. I worked in the IDF. I got to meet many different leaders from different political parties in Israel. And what I came from is, is the view that the American Jewish community was vital to Israeli society and the future of the Jewish state. Meeting people in politics in Israel, what I learned was that they didn't know a lot about the American Jewish community and they didn't really care that much. There was sort of a, like a generalized view that if you don't live here in Israel, you should be supporting us and ultimately you should be making Aliyah, which I thought was an oversimplified view of American Jewry. So there always has been a lot of focus on American Jewish organizations, bringing people to Israel, bringing American Jews, bringing Israeli leaders to, to the United States. And we sort of took the opposite tact and said, okay, we have to take Israeli leaders to the United States to learn about the American Jewish community. So I would just say it's, it's been an interesting journey. I think it's, it's been impactful. I mean, Avi Dichter, who is a member of Knesset and the former head of the Shabak, once said that he had been to America 400 times, but never really thought about the American Jewish community until he came with us. And I would say one other thing about philanthropy in general is interesting to me when you can find a vacuum and fill, fill a leadership role. And I think in this case, like in the issue of disability that we focus on, it wasn't really being well addressed in the philanthropic community. So we were able to get in and have an oversized role in, in the issue. Shira, any lessons from your own coexistence that you can apply for the broader dialogue between diaspora and Israel? I'll tell you, I think that I learned 20 years, you know, Jay and I uh, share professional life and family life. And I understand every day that we have very fundamental differences. It's not just knowledge, it's understanding of cultural codes and having an understanding of how you being raised in a society and in a school with what principles, what values. So the one thing I did learn, humility is something that really, really helps. I think that we Israelis and also American Jews at times walk into rooms and conversations like we understand it all or like we own it all or like we have it all, mm-hmm. both sides because I really think humility makes you listen. Humility makes you own your mistakes. Humility makes you understand that you don't know everything and also helps you to be more respectful. We think that if we have the chutzpah, the entrepreneurship approach, this is the solution to everything, but it's not. It's sometimes the solution of doing, but it's not the solution of understanding. So I would say that our background as diverse as they are, and they are. I grew up in a household that believed that all Jews should live in Israel. Nothing else should exist. And look where I am today, raising my kids in Boston with two identities of being Israeli and American and modern Orthodox household with not clear definition, you know, identified just with the Orthodox community. Life is complex, not as simple as we wish to have it. In the area of Israel diaspora dialogue and relations, uh, Jay, you mentioned a program that you fund, that you lead, which is bringing members of the Knesset for trips. Do you find there is something that works and some things that don't work? Like, what have you learned from doing this work? Well, what we try to do when we bring members of Knesset or journalists or other leaders or even students, because um, 
we started the only program at an Israeli university focused on the American Jewish community at the University of Haifa, is that you try to, in a very short period of time, expose Israelis to the broad diversity of the American Jewish community. And that's not such an easy thing to do. We tend to have them meet the traditional organizations, but it's much broader than that. I mean, I think what, what Israelis are looking to do and those who are more serious and, and really look to delve deeper into it is they want to meet Jews as they, as they are in America and not necessarily, you know, organizations that are historical and, you know, whose influence may or may not be as significant as it once was and to move away from elitism and to meet the Jewish community. That's a, not an easy thing to do because, you know, we live in a, an American Jewish community that's extremely diverse and inter, interspersed in, into the American society. But I found that the most um, impactful meetings for them were to meet American Jewish students, to meet the public in general. And we always, whenever we do um, one of these trips, we always do a public event where anyone can come and, and interact with the members of Knesset and, or journalists. And those have been really, I think, eye-opening events. Right. Shira? What have you personally learned from those exchanges? So I would um, say that there is the experience here in American Jewry, and there is the experience in Israel. <laughs> and it's very interesting to see it in, um, in the same time, because the two so-called communities, which I don't use communities to compare Israel to American Jewry, are truly in different places. Mentally, as a society, I can tell that in the last almost eight to 10 years that we work on this issue, I can see the change in Israeli society mm-hmm. from not being interested at all, which people will tell us in all sectors, public, media, nonprofit, not interested not interested to talk about American Jewry, not for us. It's not the time to now. We actually want to talk to you about it. There is something that we realize that we need to change. We truly believe in the impact or the relationship, and therefore we want to invest time and money across all sectors. There is an understanding right now that, yes, maybe we needed to invest more in personal connections and people to people and understand that experience in different ways uh, should take place in the exchange and stop talking in closed doors. I think philanthropists do invite, in many cases, cooperation and partnerships and interests to know each other more personally, and it helps the different sectors to bring the conversation one step forward. In terms of Israel-Diaspora relations, there seems to be two different schools of thought. One that says, let's go for people to people. The other one says, you know what, forget people to people. There's eight million Israelis, you know, seven million American Jews. It's too much. We're never going to reach a critical mass. Let's focus on influencers. Let's focus on political lobbying, political advocacy. Where do you guys stand on that continuum? I have an innate... aversion to elitism. And sometimes in the Jewish community, we are, in the organized Jewish community, a very elitist community. You know, I tend to believe that everyone has a value that's not necessarily reflected in the organized community. And and leaders or influencers come from many, many different walks of life and emerge at different times. You know, I I think that when Shir talks about people to people, it is a challenge, but it's it's important because we live in dynamic societies where leaders come nowadays out of nowhere. The traditional patterns or, or pathways to leadership don't exist so much anymore. You know, for example, the program I mentioned at University of Haifa, where is a master's program, we've now had half a dozen classes graduate. Uh, you know, scholarship is sort of a gamble, but I expect that some of those people will become leaders in Israeli society. And yeah, but then, but then you're you're also investing on the Knesset members. So, right. you know, you do think that is an important role for leadership there, because if not, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing with with the political leaders. 
Right. Well, we're doing a little bit of everything. So yes, political leaders, although I'll tell you, you know, half the political leaders we've brought are no longer in office. Um, <laughs> That's the nature of Israeli politics every three months. Uh, and, you know, we brought a number of journalists and journalism is also a profession that's, you know, rapidly changing and under attack all over the world. So we do try to have a combination of interacting with people who are in current positions of influence and at the same time reach out to people who are interested in emerging as leaders. The difficulty, I think, is, is less on the Israeli side, but more on the American side. Because... Also. Because American Jewish organizations tend to have a revolving door of people that we call leaders who are generally older male Ashkenazi, and they jump. It's not, it's not only the same type of person, it's often the same person from organization to organization. That's not reflective of what the Jewish community is. We have a great diversity in the Jewish community in terms of Sephardic, Ashkenazi, Israeli, Russian, uh, people with disabilities, Jews of color, LBGTQ, so many different, you know, young millennials. And, and that's not certainly not reflected in almost any Jewish organization that I know. And, and those, are, those are the leaders. And, and I think the American political leadership, and if you look at Congress, the House, which is the most representative body, is becoming more and more diverse Whereas we're not yet catching up as a Jewish community to reflect who we are. What we really have is a dialogue between leadership and leadership, where that leadership on both sides may not be truly representative of what's going on at the people's level. And the challenge then is how to make the dialogue broader so as to reach those people that make up the more real face of the community rather than the, the skewed demographic of the leadership. Right. Although I will say that I think Israel is more representative than the American Jewish community because Israel is a democracy and it is a country. But you're right. But you're working with elected leadership. So. Right. But that's exactly the point. Right. Israel elects their leadership. The American Jewish community does not elect our leadership. Our leadership is appointed and our leadership is often appointed based on wealth. That takes us to another issue that it's been a preoccupation of you, especially Jay, in the last few years, which is an issue with the non-democratic nature of the Jewish community. And, and that seems to occupy you a lot, right? Well, I think that we, I, I just don't think that our traditional organized Jewish community is reflective of the diversity that is the Jewish community. And I think that if organizations want to remain relevant, especially in a community that, that is very much um, assimilated, integrated into American society and American society is becoming more diverse. I mean, certainly since the time you know that I grew up, it's a very different country. If our organizations tend to look very different than the community, I think they're going to quickly become obsolete. We shouldn't have a community that is led either in front of or, or from behind by, by billionaires. And by the way, now we're seeing that happening in our public life. You know, I, I just think when you have a great disparity between the classes and one particular class gets a lot of attention paid to it. It's a recipe for disaster within a society. Right. I understand. It's not good in politics that billionaires, quote unquote, buy their candidates and all that. But in the context of Jewish communities, where we have so many unmet needs, when we have people that are willing to put their money and their time towards this, so what do you do? You just say no? I mean, I don't, even, we don't have the critical mass. Like, you know, uh, Obama could raise a lot of money online because he had 300 million people to raise money from. We don't. If we say no to, to those mega gifts, how do we replace that? Well, let me ask you this. If so, just because someone makes a large gift and then say, by the way, I, I think the next generation should be leading and do their philanthropy that way, or do they have to make a large gift and then say, by the way, I want to be the head of this organization. I also think, do Jewish organizations really reach the majority of Jews? 
you know, most Jews probably don't even know about these organizations. I mean, there, there's so many interesting and creative ways that you can reach out to people. And how do you reach out to people that, that really don't identify Jewishly, but are Jewish and, and are part of our community? So Shida, would, what's, your, yeah, what's your take? Would, um, maybe propose to look at that less about the wealth and the money and more about the way we do things. So if I go back to your question, in one hand, you invest in influencers, and in the other hand, you're saying people to people, it's not either or, it's both. Today, we have to understand how we becoming more and more as organizations, more reflecting of the different phenomena that happening in society. And I think that the people to people is not our invention. It is based on how relationships and engagement takes place today. People can get together around issues, but not necessarily in a physical term. So how do you combine the two? You invest in different people, can be influencers, can be leaders, can be educators, each organization chooses the target audience, but in the same time, you're being more open and more transparent and more innovative in opportunities to let people bring their opinions forward. And it's true to same way in philanthropy. It means you're right. I think you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, we all need funds to operate and we are depending on the funds. The question is, not if we're depending or we need. How can we use it so it will be best served in ways that will represent where we are today as a community? So I have to say the good news is that I see a lot of funders thinking like that. A lot of funders opening their boards, for example, to diverse voices, Jews of color, people that are not members of families, etc. So I think there are good steps in that direction as well. It's not going to be a democracy because minority communities are very difficult to build as democracies, but it could be more participatory and more transparent in that sense. To shift gears a little bit, and it's actually related to advocacy and transparency and communications, you guys are pretty unique among foundations in the sense that you have a very big public presence. I think you, Jay, pioneered the user of uh, Twitter and social media for a funder. Now everybody does it, but a few years, you were probably the, the, the only one. And now you're you know, virtually every day in the media, in the newspapers, even on TV. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it started off as sort of a trial and error. I always believed in advocacy. I believed in the public dialogue. And initially, the tactic that I took was to approach our grantees that we were working with on very important issues and said, you know, you have to take positions in the media because there's injustice and, and you know, we're seeing injustice. And, and then I saw either the inability or the reluctance of, of organizations to do that. So I said, well, if it needs to be done, we're going to do it ourselves. Some of the, the, the accomplishments that I think I'm most proud of is when we've been able to use our voice and work with others to address injustices, to get CBS to agree to audition actors with disabilities for all roles on, on all CBS productions, to get you know, Major League Baseball to change the disabled list to the injured list. These are things that are going to have wide-ranging impact on, on the future of how disability is seen by the American public and, and the public you know, around the world. And that was, that was accomplished through advocacy. So I talked about philanthropy in the past. When there's a vacuum, when something needs to be done but is not being done, that is really, I think, what energizes me and makes me you know, get involved in advocacy or makes us invest in an area that has been overlooked in our community. I would say advocacy, it's a practice. And there are different ways to use advocacy. So you pointed out one of the ways, which is being very public and, you know, working as, as an expert, basically, 
to be an, an authority that the media can look at you as someone that can respond or have an opinion. And in order to do that, it's not a standalone uh, media effort. It's an expertise and content building effort that we invested heavily in the foundation. So it means to produce materials that are original, that you know, and you um, invite the writers or your own staff right in. It means that you um, track many things happening in society every single day to see if it's relevant or not. It means that you are investing in educating your partners. And there are many, many actions that have to come together in order to have a good advocacy success. Right. Number two, there is a lot of advocacy that does not take place in the media that right. we still do. And this is important to understand that because if you make just a media effort, you would not get to the same impact. So if you partner with a government, you'll advocate in the government and with them in closed doors. It does not need to be in media to make a lot of policy changes that will probably create the same impact that we wish to see. So it's, it's very interesting for me as a philanthropy practitioner because using advocacy and public influence is a way of having a systemic impact that you wouldn't have if you put those same dollars into programs. And I think together with funding programs, maybe foundations need to understand that the advocacy dimension can provide a big bang for the back. I mean, CVS has more money than a foundation. If you can get them to be active on the disabilities field, you gain much more than if you funded a specific program to serve, say, 100 people with disabilities. It's true. Yeah, I also think that, I mean, there's a lot of different people in our society that have influenced. Um, celebrities have a lot of influence, sports figures, uh, business owners or, or leaders in capitalism, uh, political figures. Philanthropists traditionally have funded others, but there's some very innovative philanthropists out there who are leading organizations. I mean, a lot of our funding we've brought to organizations, not only the funding, but the ideas and said, you know, this program needs to be done. I mean, on local levels in Boston, on, on national or international levels in the Jewish community or the disability community. So we've been very, or I've been very public in, you know, my personality and my desire to create change. And I do think the advocacy has made us bigger than we are. It, right. We've punched above our weight, you know, because of, of our of being outspoken. But I do want to say, I think there is a confusion that advocacy is equal to PR. And this is maybe a perception that needs to be addressed. Advocacy is not just a PR effort. It's not that you're taking um, a PR firm and you pay to someone and this is how you do advocacy. Advocacy, it's a strategy and it's an effort that has to be, as you pointed out, correlated in a very, very, I think, meaningful way with your other activities, if it's grants or other things that funders do. Number two, many PR people do not understand advocacy. Right. You actually need to teach them and educate them in order to translate PR to advocacy uh, success. So it actually brings a lot of different skills that if you told me advocacy 10 years ago, I would tell you, as I said to Jay, I know nothing about advocacy and I don't want to have anything to do with it until I got into this and I learned that actually in order to do advocacy well, a lot of the other skills and the added value that philanthropy has, has to come together. Right. But, but if I can sort of expand a little bit of what you're saying, I think that what we have is a situation where funders and philanthropists have a number of tools at their disposal. Yes, there's traditional grants, there's advocacy and communications, there's public influence, uh, there's impact investing that you and Jay mentioned before. In other words, there is a full toolbox. And I think that philanthropists should learn to use all the different elements in that toolbox, or at least to know that those are ways in which you can make change and not restrict yourself just to one of those tools. 
the Ruderman Foundation has become sort of synonyms of uh, inclusion with people with disabilities. So you, you, you really had a big impact in that field. If you look at the field of disability inclusion in the Jewish community, in particular, but in general in, in the world, if you look at it today versus 10 years ago, what do you think are the most significant changes? I think that people with disabilities, whether they be children or adults, historically have been excluded from our Jewish community. So disability is a large part of our society, the world society. One in every five people has some form of a disability. And so I think that, that the success that we've seen, first investing in Boston, but then more nationally or internationally or with the government of Israel, what we've seen is that the Jewish community has become more inclusive and the issue has expanded greatly beyond us, which is a success. I mean, you know, I see things that are being done all the time by other organizations, other individuals that, you know, we no longer have or don't have a part in or never had a part in and that that's success. You know, I was driving down the street today in Boston and I saw a sign for a synagogue advertising inclusion. So th these are these are successes. I think that people realize that it's a, it's a large part of our community. And if we want to be open and welcoming, then we need to be inclusive of everyone. We're trying to sort of attract and affiliate it. So here we have a large population that wants to be affiliated and just are not included. So we, maybe that's a good place to start, eh? It is, it's true. So what are the, you think, in the disability sector in the Jewish community? What is the next big challenge? What are the things that you would like to see change in the next five years? You know, we have been working both in Israel and the United States and creating an organization called Link20, which are young individuals with and without disabilities and developing leadership and hosting a yearly seminar at MIT. What I'd like to see is, is people with disabilities assume positions of leadership in mm -hmm. the Jewish world. And there are some, and there should be more. And, and I think there will be more. And so, you know, when we talk about advocacy, part of what we do is to help others learn to be better advocates uh, for themselves and for others. Frida, do you agree? Yeah. I, I, yeah, first I agree with Jay. And I think that one of my wishes is that in five years, we don't have to speak at all <laughs> about inclusion of people with disability because it will be such a natural aspect of who we are as a community, how we behave as people. Diversity will automatically include people with disability without us saying, yes, it's true, but people with disability are missing in the uh, conversation, in the picture. This is my hope. I hope um, that our kids will grow up into this reality as a natural value. And for them, it will be no issue to talk about inclusion for people with disability, at least, because they understand this is part of diversity. Yeah. And then funders have an outside role to play because including people with disabilities is not only changing an attitude, it's also, you know, it demands serious investments of resources right? to make a place accessible, cost money, to have more teachers to do uh, uh, integration at school, you know, cost money. So therefore, funders need to play a role in making that vision a reality, make sure that they include special funding for these issues, even if you're not a disability funder. If you're a day school funder, well, based on your calculation, Jay, one in five of your students is going to have some sort of disability. So you're also a disability funder, even if you don't know it. Right. So when I used to um, speak to other funders and they would say, well, we don't do disability, uh, to me, I would be like, well, so I don't understand. You only want to serve four-fifths of the population and you're, you're willing to leave 20% of the population aside. And I think people have come around to that to understand yeah. that in many of the major programs that, yes, there, there is an active disability community. But I just want to say one other thing about philanthropy, which... I think you know very well by spending your life in this field and many of you know the people who are actively involved in Jewish Funders Network know, but you know, philanthropy is a very, very difficult business. If, if you want to have it, any amount of success, it takes a tremendous amount of time 
and effort and forethought and practice. And it's funny, when I often come across people, friends and acquaintances who are in the for-profit world, and they'll say, what do you do? And I say, well, I, I, you know, I run a foundation and I'm actively engaged in social justice. And they'll say, okay, well, what else do you do? And that's a job that takes... What's a real job? All of our time, you know, in order to try to influence society to become a better place. And I've seen so many people in the business world, they, they think they can get in and, and dump money into something and make it success and inevitably it fails. The nonprofit world, the business of, of trying to invest in changing our society is extremely challenging and, and difficult. And by the way, the bottom line is very difficult to measure. You know, having to work in the for-profit sector and the non-profit sector, I can tell you that the non-profit sector is much more difficult, much more difficult. And, and, the, and what you, you're right, the lack of a clear bottom line, it's sometimes problematic, but not only. The people come here with their passion, with their interests, with their emotions, uh, and with their emotions. A lot of their legacy is at stake. So uh, it's a loaded field. It's a, it's a heavy field. We recorded our conversation about your philanthropy and about the things you do and the fields in which you work in the time before COVID hit and transformed the world. So I thought it was interesting to check back with you and see for a few minutes to talk about how that has impacted you and what other things we discussed are still relevant, other things there that changed dramatically. Are you doubling down? Are you changing? Are you pivoting? That's the word of the, of the year. It's the pivot. So I wanted to, um, to start by asking you, how are you guys living through these unusual times in your philanthropy? So regarding the foundation, we made some initial grants that we felt were going to help first responders. We invested with Massachusetts General Hospital, a grant to help doctors, nurses, other hospital staff with issues of mental health. Uh, because when, it, when COVID started, Massachusetts was one of the hardest hit areas. And Mass General Hospital it was one of the centers for people coming in to the hospital. So there were many doctors and, and nurses that, you know, were working around the clock and concerned about putting their families at risk. So that was one of the steps that we took. We also made a grant to the Boston Police Foundation for police officers who were also at risk and responding to cases around the city of Boston. And then I think the third thing that we did was commission a white paper with a leading medical ethicist from University of Pennsylvania that looked at issues of triage and how people with disabilities would be treated if they came into a hospital with COVID patients. And so raising the issue of whose life mattered more and putting it out there so that people with disabilities should, that their lives should not be discounted because of their disability. So that was our initial reaction to COVID. I mean, since then, we're many, many months into it and it's impacted our uh, work life, our family life. We're a family of teenagers. Sheer and I are working from home. You know, it presents many, many challenges. And, uh, you know, life has changed and we're hoping that we will emerge from this. Um, but I think we're in the same boat as everyone else. I would um, say that since COVID started, there are two main things that happened. One, we had to look internally into our own organization and understand what is the well-being means for our own staff being spread in different locations in Israel and across the United States. So we took some internal actions for the well-being of our staff, like uh, give the option to get support, did a yoga classes together once a week, uh, removed, you know, all barriers uh, so people can, you know, get the accommodations. Externally, as Jay said, we divided our response like how we work locally, nationally, and awareness-wise. So if it's a white paper, it's around the awareness and, and making things clear when it comes to the local, from the hospital to the synagogue to the day school. And when it comes to the national, what does it do to 
the U.S.-Israel relationship within the Jewish community? How can we bring the mental health, which is a big focus of what we do in our disability work, to the next level, going back now to college, to schools? So I would say, like, COVID made us even more busy than we were yeah. before. But, but, and it also seems it kept you in a focus area because I see a debate among some of the funders. Some say, well, this is the time to actually fund in other areas that you never funded before because there is more need. But there is another school of thought that says, no, 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 this is not the time to start experimenting with areas you don't know anything about. You need to actually be focused on the things you know and on the partners with whom you have a relationship of trust. It seemed to me that you took this latter option, which is to go deeper in the things that you already do. You know, we live in times that everyone wants to speak about diversity. Everyone wants to speak about well-being and mental health. And for us, it was an opportunity to take what we do daily for the last 18 years and just make it more relevant in a very, very societal way. So it's not like out of the blue to speak about first responders. It is something that everyone felt connected in March, in April and May when it comes to the doctors, to the police. Then when everyone you know, wanted to speak about diversity because other social issues came about, it brought our conversation even one step forward. So you're right. The idea was for us to go deeper in a wider way in order to bring these issues to the forefront and not to move us from our own focus. Right. So you're expanding your focus, but you're not changing it in a way. Correct. But let me, let me ask you, you mentioned, Jay, something that is fascinating to me and, and actually very poignant about the issue of triage. And, you know, it's the question of kind of who gets the ventilator, right? I see kind of a similar situation, you know, we're not talking about people's lives, but we are talking about survival of Jewish organizations. And funders ask themselves, who should get the ventilator? Meaning funders don't have unlimited resources and organizations are collapsing and they need support. So you do need to ask the question of who do you give that ventilator? Who do you give those limited resources that you have? Did you have any experience with that? Did you face that dilemma? You know, we're in discussions with many different organizations. We happen to be at a point where many of our larger grants are coming to an end. So we're sort of at that inflection point. Regarding the Jewish community, I have maybe an unpopular viewpoint, and that is that I believe religiously the Jewish people are not going to disappear, that God is not going to allow the Jewish people to disappear. However, the Jewish people tend to move around from country to country, from city to city, from area to area. And, you know, we don't bemoan the fact that synagogues, like, for example, in Boston, have closed in Roxbury and Dorchester and Mattapan and other parts of Boston because the Jewish community doesn't live there anymore. And they moved to Brookline and Newton and, and other areas in Boston. So, you know, maybe some Jewish organizations that are not as important to the community should not continue to exist. And, you know, COVID might have forced the situation, but I think the community gets what it deserves. As you know, in your position, in the wealthiest Jewish community in the history of the world, there is enough money in the Jewish community to do amazing things. But one thing that I've learned, you can't force organizations onto the community. Either the community feels value and wants them, or they don't want them. You know, I don't think every single Jewish organization should survive. And maybe this is the time that we find out which ones are important, which ones aren't. Shida, you know, one thing that you and I discussed a lot is how the COVID crisis is impacting the field of Israel diaspora relations, because nowadays everybody seems, as Jay was saying, everybody seems focused on their own immediate community and their own immediate needs. Do you see from your work that the, the working Jewish in, in diaspora Israel dialogue that you had invested so much of is, is in danger now or it's losing interest? I don't think it's in danger. And I also, you know, would not say losing interest because, 
in many ways, we all very occupied domestically right now to our own needs, fears, challenges. But I actually truly believe that this is a time of opportunity. And I feel like after so many years of, you know, us and other partners investing in this area, there is a will among policymakers or decision makers or philanthropists to understand the opportunity. I can tell that people are interested to know what can be done, how can it be done together? What does it mean for us right now to learn from this mutual crisis? And I always said to myself and, you know, Jay, um, you know, when it comes to our personal philanthropy or when it comes to our foundation, if we do not turn this crisis that we all experiencing to an opportunity to communicate better, to share knowledge better, to understand what is our common destiny? Is it all domestic right now? Or do we have a common you know, destiny together? What does it mean when you view Judaism in times that no one can really practice Judaism the way they want? And I have to say that to some extent, I'm amazed to see the willingness of people to share, to talk, and to care for each other. And when it comes to policymakers, I think that we have some, you know, strength uh, and some <laughs> barriers to overcome to yeah. make it more significant here in the Jewish community and, of course, in the state of Israel. But I truly am optimistic. And I think uh, other challenges brought us to great innovative ideas and maybe COVID will take us there yeah. too. And one of the things that I say about COVID is that it's actually the only crisis that is impacting both Israel and the Jewish world at exactly the same time in very similar ways. It's a unifying factor in a way. It's it's kind of the first time that we're experiencing the same at the same time. It's true, but you know how many times you and me and all of us heard, you know, is the missions are the right thing to do? Is birthright, it's what we need? Is student exchanges, and suddenly COVID came and everything has to be on hold and you can crystal clearly see, hey, yes, it's exactly what we need because this is the personal connection. This is the emotional experience. This is the person to person, the business to business. So maybe, you know, it's hard to see hard times as something, you know, that good things can come out of it, but suddenly it's going to make us think like what we need is actually these personal connections and it is these personal experiences in order to appreciate what we have and at times we even took for granted. To close this update on uh, on our previous conversation, how do you imagine the future of the Jewish community and of of the Jewish world post-COVID. Do you think this is a blip and then we go back to normal? Or do you think this is an earthquake and we have to rebuild? And if we rebuild, how is it going to look? How would you want it to look? Well, I don't think it's ever going to look the same. I I think that things will change. I personally don't think that um, it's going to be, you know, a snap of the fingers and we go back to the way it was before, it'll probably be gradual. Who knows what's gonna happen with vaccines and which vaccines come out first and how available they are and, and how people decide what to take, you know, what type of precautions. Do we ever go back to shaking hands and have in-person meetings and so forth? I don't know, these are all questions that I think are up in the air right now. But I, I do think one of the things that the Jewish community is missing The Jewish community, at least in America, is very much part of American society. And American society, although we're going through a very contentious election right now, the American society has changed. It's much more diverse. The Jewish community has not followed that pattern, uh, at least in its lay leadership and its professional leadership. And so... I believe strongly that unless the Jewish community adapts to that and makes their leadership look more reflective of what the community is, it's ultimately going to become very unattractive to bring in younger people into the Jewish community. I've seen this happen in organizations I'm involved in, unnecessary crises. But I think that that there has to be some real soul searching in the Jewish community about what, what it looks like going forward. We're also living in a very assimilated society. And what does it mean as we continue to become more and more assimilated? Do Jewish organizations actually mean anything to American Jews? 
I, I don't know. What, what you're basically saying is that the reconstruction after COVID gives us an opportunity to, to rebuild on, their, on bases that are more inclusive and more diverse and more participatory. Sheila, do you, do, you, do you agree? Yes, I, I absolutely agree that life after COVID, when it comes to structural organizations, would look different. I do think that when it comes to personal relationships and when it comes to a social behavior, things will go back faster than we imagine because people, A, will be very thirsty for that and B, I hope we learn to appreciate that more. Things that we, you know, dismissed over years and and thought that maybe, you know, we are all global and all uh, can be everywhere. And today I'm in Israel, tomorrow I'm in Argentina, the day after I'm in Israel, at least this was my base, will make you think that actually the local counts and the connections count and the need to actually know who is your community and where it is and how can I access it matters because suddenly I feel alone or remote and not connected. And to me, I don't want to sound like not caring to all the changes that we are going through, but it's, it's a good wake up call because I felt like we're taking everything so for granted <laughs> and we are forgetting that Judaism is about your connected family, your community and your global story. You cannot disconnect yourself. And our younger generation, our kids included, thought like, you know, everything is everywhere and I can have everything everywhere. And I'm happy that, you know, they can use this as a wake up call to say that, you know, you do need friends and it's not just about Facebook and TikTok and whatever it is with the gazillion people you connected to. It's actually the four or five people that can give you a call and you can go take a walk with them. And in this regard, I do think we'll learn to appreciate the relationship we have with each other and with the Jewish people and with the state of Israel, hopefully more than we did before. Amen to that. Thank you both very much for this uh, update on your work during COVID and uh, for all the work you do to make the, the Jewish people and the world a better place. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Andre. Stay healthy and happy. Yes, amen. Thanks so much to Jay and Shira for taking the time to speak with me. You can learn more about their foundation and its work at rudermanfoundation.org. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org with your comments, ideas, or suggestions. And keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. And you can follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you now with a quote from Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, which says, Every new beginning requires that you open a new door. So keep opening new doors, venture into new beginnings, and keep giving. And of course, join us next time on What Gives. What Gives.